there are secrets out there, guys, performance marketing secrets, and knowing just one or two of them can light up your funnels. Let's go. This is Performance Marketing Insiders. I'm Chris Mechanic. Join me as we go deep into the secrets of the world's elite marketing minds. Performance Marketing Insiders is sponsored by Web Mechanics, the AI-driven performance agency that makes you smarter. Man, am I excited about today's guest. Uh, today's guest is an absolute expert marketer. He's the type of marketer that does things sometimes that you don't think should be quite possible like getting really, really good leads or really, really good meetings for like a lower dollar amount than you would think. He is, uh, he's definitely an entrepreneur. At, he's, he's young, he's only 33, but he's already built and sold multiple different companies, including, a, I think it was a seven-figure agency. He's trained hundreds of agencies about how to generate their own sales and leads. Uh, and he's just constantly into the latest and greatest. He was really early to the um, intent data game where you could actually buy or license really high intent data uh, to build really awesome audiences and just really impressive individuals. So I'm super excited to introduce Mr. Josh Harris. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me on here. Really excited yeah. to be here. And I was like, I was tempted to say, hey, Josh Harris of... I don't know what it is, agency growth secrets, because you're just into into all these different things, which I think is so cool about you. Yeah, um, you know, and and I can I can kind of trace like the interest into this field. You know, very much at an age when I was very young, and and when I was looking at different things, and I think when you really love what you do, along the way, you can trace like the breadcrumbs that kind of sucked you in. And totally. I think for me, one of them was, you know, when I was a teenager, I, I kind of stumbled across what I later found out to be like long form sales copy. And mm -hmm. I was like, what is this? Like, what yeah. is this thing? Like I'm, I'm reading it, you know, cause I, I never was a reader as a kid. I didn't like to read that much. I loved, you know, even books. I'd be like, I, I wanted to read comics, you know, very visually engaged. And it was like, I'd read this page. I would just be glued to it. I'm like, whatever this is, I want it. I want to buy it. You know, like, yeah. out, like hypnotizing people. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to hypnotize people. Of yeah. course, it didn't work. Um, and it was like, you know, 20 bucks or whatever. I mean, that was very early in the info stage. And I was buying these things when I was yeah. 15, 16. And then I found out what that was. I'm like, oh, that's, they call it copywriting, which you know, most people hear that outside of marketing. They think it's like the legal thing. And you're like, oh, it's, it's, it's a... A whole piece in there. So I think that was like the first thing that really got me into marketing was copy. Yep. Interesting. I like how you, how you frame it as breadcrumbs, but uh, let's jump into it. Tell us one of your biggest secrets to success. So I would say one of the biggest secrets that I have for success is it's so boring to some people when they hear it, but it is actually the most powerful thing. And it's really baselining. And what is baselining to me? It's setting the performance standard for what's possible in a role. And I think what happens is, is that every successful marketer, uh, you know, marketing executive, whatever it may be, they can trace their rise to competency in a word, right? They were competent at what they had in front of them. They figured out how to make stuff work and they figured out how to do it at an above average rate. And then as you disconnect yourself from it, you'll start to have entropy. You'll have different people and you'll have different processes. And sometimes you can never figure out what it is. Is it a process problem or is it a people problem? Or have the circumstances changed? So baselining 
is simply rolling your sleeves back up and getting back into the accounts, looking at it, and you'll start to realize things have changed. The person's not competent or, you know, it's really only those two things, you know, and then yeah. they reestablish and manage it to that expectation. And this was the thing that I traced back to all of my own success and plateaus and just about everybody I've talked to, they can backdate this to the plateaus they run into is that they disconnect themselves. They look at a number and they try to manage from a spreadsheet. And it's like there yeah. are elements at play to that, that really, really make it work. I agree with you. I see a lot of executives actually that are really, really disconnected from the work itself, including myself in some areas. Like as we've grown, you know, I used to be the chief cook and bottle washer doing it all, right? But as we've grown, I myself have become disconnected. Why do you think it's the case? Like why why do you feel that like because I feel like the majority do become disconnected, but why? Well, it's it's a matter of scale, right? As you're scaling up. You have to do more important things, but you know the things. You know, as you scale up, though, you know, you can train people to do the management roles, just like you can train people to do the the roles below. And so, what happens is, is most people they see it as just going up, but there's so much more to be learned by going back to the bottom and like looping back through. Like if you've watched the show, like Undercover Boss, you know, it's like why that show. You know, I love that show because it's it's one of those pieces that started to really show me this is a gap in some of the companies that we're in is you just get disconnected and you forget that your business is built in the front lines, the people on the front doing that work. And you just don't know sometimes like you expect too much of people, right? I mean, that's one of the things I see is like, they're like, they expect everyone to act like a, like a performance comp executive owner, you know, stakeholder. And that's not the case. That's not realistic. So then it becomes very clear. Like for me, when I go into those scenarios, I'd say about 30, 40% of the time, I'm like, oh, I actually have the wrong person in this role. But the other percent of the time, I'm like, we have a strategy problem. Like we have a leverage problem. Like this is too much work. Yeah. Like we need put more automation here, or we need to, we need to find more leverage here because the human effort of just trying to do harder and trying to work more is not going to close this gap. And if it yeah. is, it's inconsistent. And I think that's the other big piece of it is that there's so many companies out there that don't realize they are operating less on systems and more on the motivation of people that can break, you know, like systems break, but people break too. You know, they go down, they, I have one of my friends that was, uh, he's got a 60 person sales team and five brands. We were just talking about this yesterday. The team was complaining that some of their systems had broken and we actually reframed that around, well, it's not about systems being broken. Everything goes down, including people, people take vacations, people get sick. People have life events, like all these things kind of go down at certain points. So you have to figure out sometimes back on the front lines, what's possible, and then look at how you can be more strategic because it's, you can't just always work harder. You know, there is only a number of hours in the day you can work past a certain point. You just can't do it. It's not sustainable. So how do you do it? Like, what are your, I guess, habits or what advice would you give to somebody like me who I really am in that role where like, it has been a long time since I've gone to the beginning of some of our core processes. I wish I could do undercover boss, honestly, but we're not big enough. Like, yeah, well, right. I mean, they'll, they'll recognize you. They'll be like, Hey, wait a second. Maybe like a big beard, like one of those big Amish beards or something that might work. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. So what advice would you have for executives to be able to baseline more effectively, stay closer to the work, but also get their other things done. 
I, I think it's you have to have one thing in place. So the first is you know you have to have a, a culture where it's it's not this fear based culture of oh don't screw up otherwise you're fired or whatever it may be. You know there there needs to be like an understand your culture that there's an investment in their success. And then, I mean, the, the basic thing is just shadowing. You know, it's like you can do the, the shadowing, just say, hey, if you sat with a media buyer and you just said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to open Zoom and I'm going to watch everything you do for a day, right? Because I know that, that this could be better and you'll just watch it. And the thing is, is like from your vantage point, you'll start to see, well, a lot of the day is, is maybe methodical tasks. Like where could you get a lot of that time back? Yeah. Buy, you know, most people in the executive role, they try to buy their time back, but Taking it a step further, where can you buy your employees' time back? Because that's that's really what you're looking for. It's like where where is this methodical? Where can I get them more time? Because if you can help your employees do more time, and then let them know we're not trying to remove your job, we're trying to just increase the throughput of all of us as an organization. And if you look at the big ones, it's what's the revenue per employee? Higher revenue per employee is usually a good thing. And the way you do that is by getting them out of things that are super methodical and super basic. The things that are, are you know, require you to look at them every day, most of them don't require that to be the case. And you can train people to do more of these roles that aren't as experienced because uh, that would get into the other thing that I've you know, basically put in place, which is when someone comes to you and they have an issue, you know, things get escalated to you. What about this? It's just empowering people below you to troubleshoot those things. So what I've done in many scenarios, I've said, okay, so if this happens, here's here's the point at which I want it to come to my desk. You've done this and you've done this. Like I, I literally write out all the things that I would do, empower them to troubleshoot the way I would. And then what happens is, is that very few things get put on my desk because they figured them out and I'm teaching them how to figure things out. And that's really all we're doing at a certain point. No one's giving you a roadmap of how to do these things. You just show up and you trust your instincts. And you only get better at it. You know, most people think they can think themselves out of any problem. Thinking only gets you so far. And instincts come from your experience and your actions. So the more you get into that action, you just intuitively learn how to do these things. And it just becomes unconscious. So you sometimes have to unpack that and just pass that, you know, preload some of the learnings that you've had onto your team. So that's yeah. how I do that's a good activity. It's like make a list of all the things that cross your desk and then go and train slash empower your teams to follow them. That's a really good one. I like to spend the day together on a Zoom. Uh, and we've actually done similar things, but we got feedback that like it made people really nervous just to like have a have their boss sitting there on Zoom or even looking over the shoulder. So it's not exactly necessary. Well, there's, I'm sure that there's a way to do it that's a little bit less nerve-wracking. Maybe I mean, if it's a routine. Maybe if it's like, hey, not just this one big long day where like I'm gonna watch silently the whole time, but maybe it's like every Tuesday night, like we grab a, you know, around closing time or toward the end of the day, we grab a couple beers and just like jam on the account. Yeah, I mean, well, it, and it really it is about the approach, right? And I forgot the name of the guy that did this experiment, but uh, you know they. The act of observation does, you know, there's a whole quantum science side of that, but really on people, it's like they, they do different work when they're being observed. You know, they did, uh, I think it was in a factory, they had just timed lights up in the office and if the lights were on, they worked more. If the lights didn't go on, you know, they just saw activity and they were yeah. like, oh, wow, people are, are up there watching. So we better, we better work. So I think it's also just about the approach and just saying, hey, here's what we're trying to do. I'm trying to optimize the department. 
and letting them know that, hey, like you're you're kind of sold on them as a person. So I think like in scenarios like that, it can just be, well, maybe they don't, they don't know what it's like to be around you and they don't know what you're going to have in play. So the other workaround is you can use, there's some screen recording session software that they use to manage VAs. You can have those on there where it might record what they're doing for a day, but there are ways that you just, you need to find to be in tune with what the people are doing at the front. Cause that that's like the front door of the business is right there. Everything else is managing what those people do. And, you know, I've even done this in sales, you know, with a new sale, you know, product, you know, being on the front lines and talking to people that have the problem that are responding to your ads, you know, a lot of companies, they'll, they'll get big and they built it on a sales culture. And then they forgot what it's like as an owner to just connect with the people that has that problem that just, respond and say, yeah, I've got this problem. They tell you about it. And then that gives you the context because you have a different lens as an owner of what they're talking about. And someone who doesn't hear that, they just, they hear the words, they don't know what they mean. Yeah. So dude, you were telling me your backstory uh, on the pre-call, which I thought was really, really interesting. And I was like, man, you're so young. And you had like a funny, like a funny way to frame that. Um, how did you get into this? Like you were told us a little bit about reading copy as a young kid. Tell us the rest of the breadcrumbs that led you to the, like some of the things yeah. that you're doing. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so, you know, and this is something that, you know, I've said in some scenarios, but I haven't always said it, but it's like, you know, as a kid, I was homeschooled, right? And my parents were fairly early adopters of that. You know, if I was getting homeschooled in the nineties, it was, uh, it was illegal, not, not much more before that. So it was, it was a very, my upbringing was a little unconventional in that sense. So I think that that had a big impact on me to be a little bit more flexible about some of the things I learned about. And I got to really see where my interests were. So my first business experience was at 12. We were mowing lawns and it was with my older brother and we had like a dozen lawns. And a lot of people, if they're entrepreneurs, like they can trace some, some sort of performance-based compensation at a young age where they realize, oh, I can make more money by either doing this faster or you know, charging more money. And you start to see, ah, it's an equation. Right. So I think that that was like my first big light bulb moment. Uh, and then, you know, came across copywriting, you know, kind of around 15 and, you know, just kind of kept pulling the thread on that. Where is that going? And just all roads led to the internet. It's like, well, I can't make money sending out. I mean, some people still do, but like postcards and all this stuff, the internet had changed everything. And so as I got into the internet, you know, then it was like, okay, I got into websites. Then it was like, well, web no one really needs a website they want you know people to come to the website well how do you get people there well seo and local maps and all these other different things and then it's like well organic is slow well then well there's this thing called paid traffic where you can buy clicks and you know i think i remember not thinking there was much money in it because i was looking up and some companies were charging like two three hundred bucks a month for it and i was like man that, there's no money in that and then i was like oh wait a second well that's just for the small guys so you know, I eventually got into, you know, paid traffic. And, you know, for me, I think one of the big things for the agency was, was realizing I didn't have to do everything. And that there was a lot of people out there that already had skills. And that if you look at every business, you're just assembling people. That's all you're doing. You're assembling people into a structure where they all work together and there's an economic outcome for everybody involved that that's profitable. And so then from there, it's like, well, you don't have to have an office. You don't have to have these other things. So, you know, uh, call it uh, digital brokering of sorts, where it's like, hey, you understand enough about the product, but you bring in somebody who knows what they're doing. And then you subcontract them and bring them in to work on a project. And so that was a big part of just finding my way into the space was just 
the people I knew this was something that they needed help with. Mm-hmm. So, and there's how, lots of- how old were you when you, when you bought your first click? Do you remember? You know, um, I had a Facebook account when it opened, like the day Facebook ads went live, it was open. And, and if you remember, there was no pixel back, back then when they first yeah. started. So I'm trying to remember when they opened it up. It's, it's, would ha- so it would have to be 2009, maybe 2009. Yeah. I'm, I'm not 100% sure on when they opened it, but I have one of the oldest business managers. And I know this for a fact because in my business manager, most agencies, like your account limit might be like 100, 200. I've seen some people with 500, even some with 1,000. I have 2,500 ad accounts that <laughs> I, I haven't seen anyone. And I mean, this is the challenge. Send your screenshot in. I don't know anybody that has 2,500 ad accounts in their manager. That's how old mine is. Wow. So that's when I first started buying clicks on Facebook. So you have 2,500 slots or actual accounts in there? I have. I can create up to that many. There's there's, oh. hundreds, there's hundreds in there from different clients and stuff, but right. I could keep creating them because most of the time you have to request it, but I could just keep making them in there because it's it's that old. And so what was your first business model, like an agency sort of thing with contractors or was it more of like affiliate? So the first online thing, the, the first dollar I made maybe online or around that was, I think I, I sold a website for like 500 bucks to a pet store. Yep. And I was Me about, too. That's yeah. the same exact thing I did. Right. WordPress, WordPress website. It was like, uh, you know, it would probably have been, I was maybe 18. So this would have been like 2008-ish, somewhere around yeah. there. You know, iPhones and, and mobile phones were kind of coming out. And then it was like, oh, wow, WordPress mobile responsive websites. That was like a big thing. I was like, okay. So my buddy was, uh, he had actually built some websites when he was very young. And he was like, hey, man, I know how to do this. And I was like, well, I'll go find someone that needs it. I mean, that was it. And I found someone, we sold him $500, which is like now today you're like, man, that's crazy. You know, it's like not yeah. nothing at all. My story of first buck online, actually, no, first buck online, I was an affiliate marketer, but but the first like real money was probably the same exact thing selling a website. I think we sold it for 2,500 bucks to Columbia Auto Care. He's this Persian guy with this really thick accent. He'd call himself organic mechanic. He's like, I'm the organic mechanic. <laughs> but uh, But so we did the site for him and then he stiffed us. He only paid us half. Oh. He still owes us 700 bucks. I still joke with him about it to this day. I'm like, you ever going to pay me, Eddie? But he like does car stuff for me for free. Oh, there you go, man. So maybe you're the one that got the best deal at the end of the maybe, day. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, that's $700. Cool. Well, this is this is uh, fascinating, dude. So tell me the rest. So, so basically, you got in, you sold a website, you started messing around with Facebook ads, then you built out, I guess, was it your first agency that you started building? Yeah. And so I, I kind of was just an organic, you know, I was selling websites to people. And then a big aha was, well, if I sell a website that has copy on it, you know, then that's going to help drive more conversions. Cause most people like they'll have a website and they just don't have any lead capture on it at all. It's like call in or submit some stupid contact form, but there's no like lead capture or anything on there. So I was like, well, let's just put some stuff on there. Cause most people they get, you know, someone will say, Oh, check out this company. They go there, they go to the website. They don't have any sort of lead capture stuff. So that was, I think, a big aha for me. So then I went from selling websites for like 500 or 1,000 to like three to 5,000. And that was a big jump for me. At the time, I had a marketing job. I was working uh, with a nonprofit. And I was kind of like their CMO of sorts. So I was doing all this stuff and I was learning and kind of like, uh, I'm sure you remember these days where it's just like you felt like you knew everything, but couldn't do anything. 
It's like, I, theoretically, I get, and it's like crossing that chasm of just not collecting that information and acting on it. And to me, there was a big aha when I suddenly just said, Josh, I am no longer going to consume any content that is not actionable for me. If it's not actionable right now, I'm not going to consume it. And that was a big turning point for me because then I started saying, well, what do I need now? Well, I need to know how to do this. And suddenly your content consumption becomes useful instead of reading about like reverse double mergers for if and when I'm at that point in my life. I'm like, well, I know how to do that if I remember if and when I get there. So that was a big turning point. And so I then kind of evolved from, okay, well, how can I get more subscription business? Because the websites are very one time and, you know, I wasn't getting them to stick around. So then it kind of evolved into saying, okay, well, maybe I should niche down. I started niching down into kind of being with, you know, cosmetic dentists and things like that. And what I basically did was I assembled some contractors that were really good at what they did. And I said, well, give me the ideal conditions for you to produce your result. And I then took that and then went to market with that. A lot of people, they do it the other way. They'll, they'll say, hey, what do you want to buy? And they try to figure it out. And so if, you know, when you're at that point, me changing that to say, let me find what I know we can do the best result. because I know that's worth paying for. And I know it'll stay and look at the results. That was a, another big change. So then I scaled my, my agency up and I kind of, I, I, I scaled up to almost like 40,000 a month, just as me as a solopreneur, not working with any staff or whatnot. And then that's when I kind of hit the next stage, which was I had people that were agencies that were like, well, how are you doing this? How are you getting clients? Like, what are you doing? And, you know, I was just like, well, I'm just kind of doing this. I'm, I'm focusing on a niche. I'm reaching out to them directly through LinkedIn. Like, I, sorry, guys, I was, I was one of those guys that ruined LinkedIn, maybe. You know, I was uh, <laughs> spamming back in 2014, 2015, back when you could send 100 invites a day. And, you know, that was a big advantage back then. And, and we, I used automated things to do outbound messaging to people. And then I moved them to email and then follow up through other channels. And so I just, I had a built a, a system by really just assembling technology where I said, well, what's the process and how do I just automate this? Because I don't have the time to do it methodically. Mm-hmm. That was, a big, that was a, big, a big turning point of just like jumping upward. Got it. Got it. And then it's, I think you then pivoted into kind of training other agencies on how to build those systems. Yeah. And, and it really just happened organically because uh, like many of us in this space, you know, there's there those we shall not name who are you know the those who can't do teach people out there that are just they they're they're like what we talked about earlier they're not just an owner detached from it but they're a consultant of something they maybe never even did that well and they're literally yeah. just repeating stuff that is not earned knowledge you know it's just parroted you know and if you don't earn the knowledge that you're teaching then it's like well most of these people say well i don't know how it works or why it works just that it does work so if it breaks they're, they're, it's like basically taking your car to go get it repaired by someone who's never fixed a car, but because they drive a car, you think that they know, and it's very different. And so I just, it just kind of kept happening. I had people say, well, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm just doing this. And they did. They're like, hey, it worked for me too. And I'm like, well, I'm not surprised. You know, I tried a lot of things that didn't work and this is what works. And they're yeah. like, you teach people because a lot of these people out here are just, they don't know what they're doing. They don't have a good process. So I was like, I don't want to be one of these guys that just does it. And so then I, I kind of put myself out there and I had a bit of an organic following from some of the groups I was in and then people were coming in and I didn't want to work with new people. I wanted to work with people that were a little bit more established, but the people that were more established were like, they almost saw me as a peer, not someone that could help them, even though they definitely could. They were like, oh, I could do that, but they weren't doing it. Right. So it was more people that were a marketer and they had a day job in some cases, or they were part-time. 
I, for some reason, seemed to get more and more of those people that were like, hey, I'll, I'll do it. And because they hadn't really gotten the traction they wanted, they followed through. And a lot of those people got great results. So that was my, my first big launch. And then, you know, as I got bigger, I had more established people come my way. And then, you know, I can tell you about how we got into some of the cool technologies along the way. Cool. Yeah. That's, that was actually my next question is like, like, what's, what are you into now? Like, what are you excited about? Yeah. You know, and what I'm excited about, and, and it's always been this common theme is like technology around leverage is like, how do you create leverage? And so copywriting got to me because it was like, ah, this ability to speak to a large audience in mass. Right. And I'm like, wow, that's really exciting. Digital ads, large reach. And so I was always looking through that lens of like, how can I leverage a process that's personalized, that's effective and scalable? And so that's where the LinkedIn stuff had come in. And that's where, um, you know, I was running, I think we were spending $100,000 a month on our inbound funnel. And we were, we were doing millions of dollars in consulting. And we were doing really well. And then because I was in that spot, I just had so many people come across my desk and they'd say, oh, I'm using this or, oh, I've heard of this or that. And, you know, we hear about new tools every day, but that kind of gave me the skill set that's really helping today, which is the ability to, to see something and really understand its business use case. Like, where does it really actually drive revenue, tangible value? And it's it's become this thing that I can't even quite explain to everybody, just that once I see it, I can see the applications because of all the different things I've done. And so that was the first time I kind of came across the concept of identity resolution. And this would have been back in, ooh, I think 2017 is really when I was looking at that. And, you know, back then that was like pre-Cambridge Analytica and there weren't a lot of people that were really doing it. And the concept was just, oh, wow, you can see who these people are who are coming to your website using cookies and all these other things. And I remember, I mean, I just was like, wow, this is really exciting stuff. So I got into that and then I was helping a lot of other agencies kind of incorporate that into some of their value proposition for how they marketed. And, and you know, identity resolution has kind of eventually found its spot, you know, a little bit more in the market, but it was definitely a lot more sizzle than steak, in my opinion, especially after Cambridge Analytica came out. And then after, you know, I was 14, you kind of saw that, that getting pulled back. And so because of the role I was in, I was always looking for things along those lines. And that's when the next stage of it was really, well, where's the problem? Where are, are my clients and their clients having problems? So it just gave me like this, this real-time access and finger on the pulse to people that were in every niche that you can imagine. You know, they were in local, they were in e-com, and they had their clients. So I just got to see as an aggregate, you know, which a lot of other people would never see that. Like, where are the aggregate problems? And the next big one that I saw was just follow-up. Like they like leads were were easy to generate. And initially there were all these like self-booking funnels. And it's like everything else out there. The first time a personalized email came across your net, your desk, and it says, Hey Josh, and you're like, Oh, he's talking to me. And then you're like, wait a second. <laughs> They're just using those personalizations. And yeah. and you see this, I'm sure, right, Chris, with like the life cycles of technologies, as it becomes more proliferated, its effectiveness drops. So you have to always like kind of almost be looking for that next piece of leverage. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, think about SEO, right? You used to just go and put keywords in the title tag and white text on white background, and you would rank. But it's so so different now. It's 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 an arms race, almost. Is how I think about it. Is like it's it's a bit of an arms race, and it's you have to be always adopting new things, specifically around leverage. And so, leverage, I think that to me, I think about it like this: the number one resource that we have is is ultimately people's time. Like that's it. We have to buy their time. So anything that gives them their time back or makes it more effective, that's the lens that I'm always looking through. So for AI, it was, well, 
can we automate the mechanical interactive part of conversations? And yeah. most people, they also think of it as an all or a nothing as opposed to a spectrum. It's like, well, if half of your conversations that you would have could be automated and they said what you would say, when you would say it, that means that you can either talk to twice as many people, spend half as many time doing it, uh, but you also aren't factoring in the efficiency that's gained with a faster conversation with more quick, relevant answers. And so that was a thing that we we pushed out to a lot of our agencies and they offered it and they won with their clients because they solved their problem. It, it solved the people, the human capital issue of follow-up. And now, you know, as I always say, yesterday's advantage is today's prerequisite to success. Like you got to always be looking for that next thing. Yeah, totally. Um, so I got a couple of different directions I'm interested to go. We are a little bit short on time, but you never really told me much about the AI, the conversational AI product. Like, how does that work exactly? I was on your website and it was like, it was basically looked pretty impressive. I could pull it up here maybe, but tell yeah. us just a little bit about that, how it works or. Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's really two, two areas that I focus on now and they both kind of involve, you know, some forms of AI. And so the one side that, that we saw with our brand, it's AI sales systems is really helping them bridge the follow-up gap. And so, you know, anyone that's running any sort of high volume of traffic, they're getting leads, you know, the fortunes in the follow-up and it's about speed, it's about relevancy, it's about getting in touch with them. So we're able to create you know, I like to think of it like this. Imagine, you know, everything that you used to have with an autoresponder, you know, where, you know, active campaign and, you know, formerly Infusionsoft, how it's like you have all these if this, then this, and you're moving people through. Well, it's taking the same concept and making it conversational. So saying, okay, well, what would be the process if I just had my phone out and I was texting every lead that came in and I had unlimited time, it was a million clones of me, like, how would I do that? And that was really how we started. Like we looked at the last year, it was like hundred million text messages that we've sent with our different clients. And we just learned from an aggregate, what works? Like, what should you say? How should you say it? When should you say it? Like I'll look at people, they get 20 different touch points, then they respond. And if your system's not able to respond or you're not notified that they did, you miss them, right? Because everyone, when they forget about follow-up is follow-ups on your schedule, but they reply on their schedule. And so when they reply, you have to be available. And so our system that we've kind of developed is really based on a methodology, which is conversationally follow up along with your nurture. So just like you'd have your nurturing content based on where they're at and whatever your process is, have those personalized conversations and have them deployed. And the thing about it is you don't have to do everything, but everything you do at least does happen. And you, know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And on top of that, you can't retroactively follow up with anyone. I can't follow up with the people I was supposed to last week. And, you know, most people, they they have a longer bind cycle. So you have to do that. So the way it kind of works when we work with people is we just map out their manual process. And then we kind of merge that with what we know works as an aggregate. And then it kind of deploys a conversational way to follow up with, schedule with, or nurture, you know, people in the way that you would if you had unlimited time and that was all you did is like the owner who understood the problem and the product and, and everything like that. So that, that's kind of like how it works high level. Interesting. And so it's, um, is it a service more so or a tech? So a it's a little bit of both. So our thing is like, we, we see different platforms coming up all the time. And like, I won't mention any of them on here because they might, you know, by the time this comes out, be outdated, you know, and th this is a very fast evolving space. It's, it's a bit of an arms race. Every CRM right now in the world's kind of trying to figure out how to integrate this into it because mm -hmm. the whole point of a CRM is to follow up. 
And the whole concept here is they've realized, well, we've been trying to get people to do this forever. And if you run any sort of sales organization, it's like, have they updated the CRM? Well, they haven't. So like the future really is the salesperson is, is having their day organized by an AI. It's, it's scheduling people when you have availability. It's moving people around. And the interesting thing to go real big here is the eventual trajectory of this is as sales eventually becomes AI-based with voice, with, with tech, right? That can basically integrate to your systems, that can talk to people. And I mean, there's voice tech that, that's out there that's, that's very mind-blowing. That it's, you know, you, you look at deep fakes, you look at the voice tech, you look at these things. It communicates with people the way you would, and it can learn from that. Well, once sales goes almost entirely AI-based, the next evolution is procurement. And then AI will become procurement-based. So then if you look at the entire departments of sales, the entire departments of onboardings for companies, so much time is spent trying to figure out what they should buy and then how to integrate it. And the future is really going to be these platforms that help connect the businesses to each other to integrate and give them fractional access to the solutions they need. Because sales and all these other things are just these means to an end that can eventually just kind of hit this, this very interesting point down the road. And that's scary to some people, but there's no way it won't go that way. That's just the track we're on. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting thinking, actually. Um, and I could totally see that happening. So it would be almost like a world with no salespeople? It's, it would be a world with less salespeople, right? Because less. sales will become like everything else, right? I mean, if we look back, we just say, let's just look back at the trajectory of technology. What's the oldest technology we have? Farming right? And we look at farming. Well, it's like you watch Interstellar, one of my favorite movies. It's like, they've got these drone powered combines that are, are harvesting. Like that's, that's where tech is going because eventually you don't need a person to operate that. There's a mechanical methodical part. So as we put more, you know, track on the, you know, on the road, miles on the road of the track to learn, there starts to become this, okay, we can do this and we can do this. And so that's where it's going. And so when you look at most products and services, there are ways to start to personalize them in tracks. And so it's, it's personalization having its evolution to be conversational, to get people what they need. Um, you know, like, and there's many exciting things like in therapy, you know, having a therapist who can listen to you and give you fractional unlimited access to that. You know, it's like, yeah. that's going to have to be a person, at least for some of the basic things. And that's how it'll go. It's like the old call centers when you'd be screaming at them, real person, you know, and you're like, yeah. But that'll be there where you won't know it's not. It'll pick up. You'll have, you know, elastic access to it, just like the cloud and everything else. But it'll happen. It's just a matter of like, what'll be the adoption? And it's going to be very invisible. And I, I put this all into kind of the, what do they call it? Really the IT, uh, the AI market, right? I think we did about a hundred or so billion in the last year. By the end of the decade, it'll be a $1.8 trillion market. And it's growing rapidly. And it's just because everything AI based is just efficiency at scale. So it's removing your biggest bottleneck, your highest point of failure, and you know, the number one headache in a business, which is like the scaling of human capital and just eliminating some of those bottlenecks to, to scale the access. And that's where this huge advantages are popping up where suddenly, oh, you'd have to scale a, a team of people that would message your leads and everything. Well, if it's the same conversation, now it's scalable. And it creates yeah. these opportunities. Fascinating, dude. You've given us some awesome stuff to think about here uh, from you know the past to the present to the future. So I do appreciate that. I want to be sensitive of your time. Uh, and we're, we're just about at time here. 
but I am curious, just like on a personal tip, like, what do you, what do you like to do for fun? Or like, how do you unwind? <laughs> well, you can't see any in here, but I am probably, I'm definitely a huge Lego fan and I have so many Legos. Uh, they, they can't seem to, I like building the big ones. Like I just finished this a huge set in my other room there, the Titanic, it's like 9,000 pieces. Yeah. I, I love doing it because it it engages a different part of my brain and it was my favorite toy as a kid and there's a lot of people i know it's like in our space it's like if, if you were into legos as a kid you kind of found your way into this because it had creative components but it also had these very you had to follow instructions you know when you're building a seven thousand five hundred piece millennium falcon there's no room for error you can't like oh you can put it here or here so it teaches you it just reinforces that detail it reinforces all of that and i can do it without thinking because it's very visual you look at the instructions put these pieces there. So I could be listening to something, you know, listen to a, you know, a podcast or, you know, learning is really my, my biggest enjoyment. I wish I could just spend all my time learning and absorbing what other people are doing and, and studying stuff. Uh, so that along with, with Legos and things like that, and then, you know, spending time with my daughters, I've got a nine and 10 year old and just like teaching them about life and, you know, the, the things that they're going to experience and stuff. Those are the things I love to do. And it just, uh, it excites me. And, and I just, when you, when you're doing what you really like to do, it just doesn't feel like a big challenge, you know, it's, and that's not always easy, but I'd say those are the things I do to unwind. Nice. And dude, I'm really, really impressed by you. Really impressed by you. Just like the depth of your thinking. I mean, you're not just a great marketer. You're thinking about the future of AI. You're like, you know, tuned into the size of the markets and the growth rates of the markets. So like your macro plus your secret was all about micro. So you're like, you're a really impressive cat, man. Thanks, man. I mean, I, I just try to show up and work every day and, you know, it's like, nobody really knows what they're doing. You know, it's like, we're just trying to like, you know, uh, some people will say like, Oh, I don't know how to do that. I'm like, look, dude, like your whole life, you're just doing stuff you haven't done before. Like, that's it. That's yeah. like, like, Hey, wake up today. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I haven't done it before and I'll figure it out. Um, top three reads, top three, most impactful reads of your life. Not necessarily like marketing based, but just like, what are three reads that? Mm, yeah. Good. I didn't know there was going to be a quiz at the end of this. So I would say number one, and it's, it's hard to say these are number one, but there's definitely two at least. And I might think of a third one. One of the books that impacted me the most at a young age is was Dale Carnegie's, you know, how to win friends and influence people. And most people yeah. say, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's almost become a cliche that people, they hear it too many times. It's like, read the book. And if you read it before, read it again, if you haven't read it in a long time. But I mean, the summary is really just, look, if you really figure out how to be interested in other people and, you know, leverage the fact that most people don't feel heard and just listen to them. That right there is, is one of the number one things you can do in business and in life is just learn to listen and become a good active listener, right? Like if you can learn to, to summarize what people are saying back to them and really understand what they're saying, it's huge. So I'd say that's one. And this is, I wouldn't say that it's a top order. It's just, these are just really three that did it. Yeah. The second book I'd have to say that made a big impact on me, um, which was a more recent read, which I also heard was highly recommended, is uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Mm -hmm. I say his name. And I mean, that book really just kind of un unpacks the concept of, of suffering and human, you know, it's, it's a very interesting book, you know, really understanding like, what is the meaning of suffering? What is the meaning of hardship? And when you see people having to go through really difficult times, 
it's like maybe the meaning of life is its great contrast, you know, is that you don't know what, what something is unless you have a, a point of comparison. So I'd say that's another one. And I mean, man, there's so many other good ones. Um, I'd, I'd say a third person, I'll categorize a few of his books into this would be Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. And the four hour work week, a lot of people did. Now, obviously I, you know, uh, I think what I got out of his book was really leverage, right? Well, if you can work four hours, well, that means well, if you work 40 with the concept of, could I do a whole week's worth in four hours? You learn to kind of just create leverage for yourself. And there's other two books with that, uh, Tribe of Mentors and Tools of Titans, just great books to just kind of reread because it's just a collection of a lot of good stuff. So, Oh yeah. I love Tools of Titan, man. That's just like a great one for the coffee table. Just open it up to almost any page and, and it's really good. It's a beautiful book too. And so it's almost got that coffee table, you know, look to it, but yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Like you can always go back to that at any time and it's, it's really incredible. Sweet. Well, Hey Josh, thank you so much. I believe that the audience will love this. If you're listening to this and you did love it, give us a like, a comment, a thumbs up, share it with a friend. Uh, and we will see you next time. Oh, Josh, one last thing. Um, how can people learn more about you or your current projects? Yeah. So you can look me up on social media. Like you'll find me on there. I think it's like Josh Harris life is kind of some of the stuff that you'll find. Uh, and you can also just check out, you know, one of our websites, the one right now, AICellsystems.com. And you can see some of the stuff that we're working on there. Cool. And we'll definitely include links to those in the show notes and we will see you next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at performancemarketinginsiders.com. This podcast is sponsored by Web Mechanics, the performance agency that makes you smarter, offering AI-driven search, paid social, analytics, and conversion rate optimization for financial services, health, B2B, and SaaS brands that know. Hey guys, exclusive for listeners of this podcast, you can get a performance marketing assessment for free. And this isn't some cookie cutter automated report. It lays out detailed, specific things you can do right now to unlock limitless growth and nirvana level personal satisfaction. To claim your free assessment, just go to performancemarketinginsiders.com slash audit and you'll have your customer report within just a few days. 